Our scripture reading is found in 1 Samuel chapter 7, and we're going to commence reading at the opening verse of the chapter. 1 Samuel chapter 7, and commencing at verse 1. First Samuel chapter 7, commencing at verse 1. And the men of Kirjath-Jearim came and fetched up the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab in the hill and sanctified Eliezer his son to keep the ark of the Lord. And it came to pass, while the ark abode in Kirjath-Jearim, that the time was long, for it was twenty years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel spake unto all the house of Israel, saying, If ye do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the strange gods and Ashtaroth from among you, and prepare your hearts unto the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Then the children of Israel did put away Balaam and Ashtaroth, and served the Lord only. And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpeh, and I will pray for you unto the Lord. And they gathered together to Mizpeh, and drew water, and poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day, and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the house of Israel in Mizpeh. And when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel were gathered together to Mizpeh, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the children of Israel said to Samuel, Cease not to cry unto the Lord our God for us, that he will save us out of the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took a sucking lamb and offered it for a burnt offering holy unto the Lord. And Samuel cried unto the Lord for Israel, and the Lord heard him. And as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day upon the Philistines and discomfited them, and they were smitten before Israel. The men of Israel went out of Mizpeh and pursued the Philistines and smote them until they came under beth Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpeh and Shen, And called the name of it Ebenezer, saying, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. So the Philistines were subdued, and they came no more into the coast of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. And the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron even unto Gath. And the coasts thereof did Israel deliver out of the hands of the Philistines. And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went from year to year in circuit to Bethel and Gilgal and Mizpah and judged Israel in all those places. And his return was to Ramah, for there was his house. And there he judged Israel, and there he built an altar unto the Lord. Ending our reading there at the end of that seventh chapter of 1 Samuel and trusting that the Lord will add his blessing uh, to the reading 
of his holy truth for Christ's sake. Amen. Verse 12 of 1 Samuel chapter 7 is the verse that I uh, want us to think about uh, in our service this morning. Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpeh and Shen and called the name of it Ebenezer, saying, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. It's interesting when uh, you consider the importance of memorial stones in the Bible. Uh, you will find that Jacob anointed the stone on which he had laid his head. And he said, this is uh, the very place where God dwells. This is Bethel. This is the house of God. He anointed that stone. He set that stone apart. And then when the tribes of Israel uh, parted, uh, this was before there was any division amongst them, but when they parted and Reuben and Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh took their place, their soldiers took their place on the eastern side of the Jordan, just before they reached the Jordan, they raised some stones. At first it caused confusion and almost caused a civil war because the tribes thought they had set up those stones uh, as an altar separate from the altar of God. But they were reassured. They were put there as a memorial so that the nine and a half tribes would not say, you on the eastern side of Jordan are not part of our nation and you have no right to come to the place of worship where we worship God. So when the misunderstanding was cleared, the stones were left there. This is a witness that we belong to the nation. Then, of course, uh, we can think of the stones that were placed in Jordan uh, by the, uh, the children of Israel. Uh, it was the very place where the priests had stood holding the ark of God. And God told them to gather together 12 stones and in the midst of Jordan, there are 12 stones. Uh, we don't know if they're there to this day. They were there for uh, many years, perhaps for centuries. But they were raised up as a memorial in the midst of the Jordan to the fact that God had divided uh, the, the river Jordan uh, for the priests uh, to go over. Uh, and they had gone over dry shod. And when they reached the other side... Uh, then uh, they raised another memorial of stones to what the Lord had done for them. So these stones were very significant. And here we find Samuel takes a stone. We imagine it's a massive stone. And he gives it a name. He calls it Ebenezer, uh, which means the stone of help. And then he tells us why it's called that. He says, it's because up to now, hitherto hath the Lord helped us. This is our memorial to what the Lord has done in delivering us out of the hands of the Philistines. And uh, we lay foundation stones in our churches and they remind us of how the Lord provided our meeting place. We put gravestones up uh, over the graves of our loved ones to remind us of how much we loved them and how much they meant to us. Now, we're going to focus uh, on this stone 
called Ebenezer, the stone of help. And we're going to think about the words that are attached to give meaning to that stone. Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. And the first thing that I want you to see is where the focus lies here. The focus lies on Jehovah. Hitherto hath the Lord, or hitherto hath Jehovah helped us. That's the secret of success, having the Lord on your side. You may have noticed at the start of the chapter, it says the time was long. And it says it was 20 years. It was 20 years. And that brings us right back to chapter 4. I'm not going to turn to it, but chapter 4 of 1 Samuel. And there you'll find the name Ebenezer again. And back in chapter 4, we discover that it was at Ebenezer that the children of Israel suffered a most ignominious defeat at the hands of the Philistines. They had sinned against God. They had failed God. And then they thought that they would bring in the ark of God, almost as if it were some sort of magical charm. Bring in the ark of God. And Hophni and Phinehas carried in the ark of God. Those two men were vile characters, most immoral, most sacrilegious. They were the sons of Eli, who was a weak man, but a good man and a godly man. Eli had told them off for their uh, terrible behavior, but they wouldn't listen. And they thought, they thought that they could invoke the help of God just by carrying the ark of God into the scene of battle. The upshot was not just defeat, but disgrace, humiliation for the children of Israel. The Philistines at first were alarmed and they thought the presence of God is coming. And then they said, let's acquit ourselves like men. Let's behave like true soldiers. Let not us as Philistines be servants to the Israelites as they have been servants to us. And they defeated the Israelites. They slew Hophni and Phinehas and they captured the ark of God. The scene of an ignominious defeat when the children of Israel depended on the outward symbol of God's presence but not on God himself. And have we not also suffered many times when we've tried in our own strength to prevail? When we've forgotten the Lord, when we haven't truly invoked his aid and surrendered ourselves to him. Many times we have suffered defeat because of sin and we have been ashamed. Of course, if we think of our unsaved days when we thought that uh, we could live without God, we were soon brought to see our folly, soon brought under conviction of sin, and we stared out over the abyss. We saw hell gaping at our feet. And we realized we cannot, we cannot get to heaven 
We cannot escape hell if we go on in this way. And we cried out, maybe not the exact words, but the exact sentiments, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Just as the publican in the temple prayed that prayer, so we prayed it. We cried to God, if you're saved, you recognized that sin had defeated you, that there was no hope outside of the Lord. And we can say, all glory be to God if we're saved. Salvation is of the Lord. When we pleaded with him, he helped us. It was the Lord who rescued us. It was the Lord who heard our cry. It was the Lord who saved us. And we can say today, I'm only a sinner, saved by grace. This is my story. To God be the glory. I'm only a sinner, saved by grace. The focus here must be on the Lord. Go back 20 years. It's a scene of defeat. Advance 20 years. It's a scene of triumph. Because the Lord hath helped us. And when we look around, when we look at our church and the history of our church, we can say the Lord raised up this church. The Lord raised up Dr. Paisley. Before he raised up Dr. Paisley, he raised up Nicholson. Before he raised up these men of God, he raised up others. He raised up men in the 17th century And they preached in the Six Mile Water Revival, a revival that lasted for approximately 10 years. He raised up men to preach in the 1859 Revival, a revival that swept, it is believed, 100,000 people in this province into the kingdom of God. And remember, the population was a lot smaller then than it is today. Our population's rising. It was smaller then. That was a time of, of a smaller population and God swept a hundred thousand into his kingdom. He did the same in Wales at the same time. It is believed that half a million, maybe more, were swept into the kingdom of God in America between the years of 1857 and 1858. It was the Lord who did it. It was the Lord, if I go back to the Reformation, who raised up Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and Melanchthon and many others, who raised up the martyrs to take a noble stand at the stake and go back even further. It was the Lord who came down on the day of Pentecost. As those people were assembled in the upper room, suddenly, that must be God, suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the place where they were sitting, sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. Three thousand were saved. Then the number grew to five thousand men. And then they add in the women and children. A great company of the priests was obedient to the faith, we find that the word increased and multiplied. It spread into Samaria. 
And then it spread beyond the, the, the Jewish centers of worship. And the Apostle Paul carried it over Europe or across to Europe. And when it came to Europe, it came to Ireland. And that's why we don't worship sticks and stones, why we don't worship the rowan and the yew tree. It's why we worship the God who made us, the God who is, the God who was, the God who always will be. God did it. It was not of man. And we can say, hitherto hath the Lord helped us. We can raise our memorial. We can say, God delivered me from defeat, from failure. He, he snatched my steps uh, uh, back from uh, the pathway to hell, kept me from going into the depths of despair. Hitherto hath the Lord, hitherto hath the Lord helped us. All glory to the dying Lamb, all glory to the Saviour. But, but I want to bring in a second point here. And I want to say that the Lord helped these people in particular circumstances. All the focus is on the Lord. But then remember that he helped them in particular circumstances. Generally, the Lord does not work independently of people. You think of the man with the withered hand. There he is. He can't use his hand. I don't know what shape it was. I don't know what shape it was. But I imagine it's curled up. Maybe limp at his side. Can't, he can't use it. And Christ is there. Only Christ can, uh, can make that hand as strong and fit as the other hand. But what does Christ say to the man? He says, Reach hither thy hand. Reach hither thy hand. What does he say to the man who's lying paralyzed on that pallet? What does he say to him? He's lying there. It's, it's I suppose, a bit like a carpet, what he's lying on. And he's lying there. Maybe a quadriplegic. His friends have carried him and uh, they've brought him up onto the roof and they've lowered him down. Uh, to, through taking away some of the tiling on the roof. They've set him at the feet of Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can heal that man. Nobody else can do it. What does Jesus say? He says, be of good cheer. Son, be of good cheer. Rise. Take up thy bed and walk. Now the argument that those two men might use is this. The man might say, my hand, reach it out. I can't. The man in the bed might say, get up and walk. What do you mean? I'm a quadriplegic if he had known such a term. I, I'm helpless. My friends had to carry me here. Christ says, rise up and walk. He says, stretch forth thy hand. And, and the woman who's bent over, he straightens her. Woman, thou art loosed from thine infirmity. So you can straighten yourself. But she has to do it. You see, he doesn't act independently of us. When he says, reach out your hand, you must do it. In obedience to his command. When he says to the man, rise up and walk, he must get up. 
When he says to the woman, Thou art loosed from thine infirmity, she must look up. She must look up. I'm saying this to you. The Lord does not work independently of you or me. There's no good sitting there and saying, I can't do it. C.H. Spurgeon uh, was saved as a boy of 15. And he was in a church with only a handful of people. It was a church that probably normally was packed. But it was in January. And there was a heavy snow on the ground. And instead of going to the church he intended to go to, he went into a primitive Methodist church in Artillery Street in Colchester. And the preacher was far from eloquent. Uh, he, um, he wasn't a regular preacher because he had been snowbound also. And this man stumbled over a few words, uh, said all that uh, he could say and all he could think. Uh, he was preaching from Isaiah 45, verse 22. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and beside me there is none else. And after the preacher had, had run out of what he had to say, he spotted the boy. And he said, young man, you look very miserable. Young man, look to Christ. And suddenly, Charles Spurgeon, the boy of 15, saw it. Suddenly he realized, I've got to look to Christ. He has done the work. He has died on the cross. He's God Almighty. He's able to save. I need to look to him. And by looking to Christ, Looking in faith, surrendering his heart to Christ, Charles Spurgeon found peace with God and he never looked back. He went forward from that time on to become London's greatest ever preacher. And perhaps along with George Whitfield, the greatest preacher in the English language. What a man of God he was. But he had to, he had to look. He had to look to Christ. Christ, yes, paid the price. Christ did it all. The hymn writer said, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Yes, he did it all. But I've got to reach out to him. I've got to call upon his name. And you'll notice here, that the Lord helped them in particular circumstances. If you look at verse 2, it says that the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. They lamented after the Lord. The time was long. They, they longed for God. Then in uh, other verses, and I don't want to uh, take up too much time, but verses 3, 4, and 6, you see them repentant. They're sorry for their sins. We cannot expect God's blessing unless we are deeply, thoroughly repentant. We look into our lives and we remove every stumbling block. The psalmist put it this way. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. That's in Psalm 66. Towards the end, I 
It's either verse 16 or 17. I haven't it written down. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. It's, it's like you think of this building and you have the electricity supply and it's coming right to the building. But if it's not connected, if it's not connected, you'll have no power. And you will not be connected to the Lord if uh, you're conscious of something in your life that is wrong. Samson trifled with sin. He trifled. He made light of it. He, he played with fire. And eventually, he was disconnected from the power of God. The, the symbol of his consecration was his unshorn locks. And he said, if a razor comes in my head, he betrayed the secret to Delilah, if a razor comes in my head, I'll be weak. I'll be as other men. And Delilah lured him to sleep, his head on her knees, and probably she gave him some potion to knock him right out. And his head was shaved. And then she cried out, The Philistines be upon thee, Samson. Samson thought he was connected with the power of God. I will arise and shake myself as at other times. But the Bible says, He wist not that the Lord was departed from him. And what shame, what failure, what humiliation, as he became a slave of the Philistines with his eyes put out. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. The hymn writer said it this way. We cannot be channels of blessing if we consciously trifle with sin. We will barriers be and a hindrance to those we are trying to win. So, there was a longing for the Lord. There was a thorough repentance, a turning from every known sin. And then they cried to God. They prayed. They had Samuel praying and they prayed. And they said to Samuel, Cease not to cry unto the Lord for us. And he told them, God forbid that I should. God forbid that I should cease to pray for you. See, there's, there's this mutual relationship here between the prophet and the people. They cry, he cries. And may I just suggest an analogy here? You have a minister here. He needs your prayers. The apostle Paul constantly exhorted the churches to which he was writing to pray for him. Brethren, pray for us. And I know Dr. Paisley always signed uh, a Bible uh, with Ephesians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, encouraging people to pray for him. You need to pray for your pastor. And your pastor needs to pray for you. I've no doubt that he does, and I've no doubt that you Pray for him, but pray more earnestly. Christ prayed more earnestly in Gethsemane. We all need to pray more earnestly, more fervently. 
God forbid, Samuel says, that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. They said, please, we need your prayers. And he assures them that he will pray. We cannot have triumph over the enemy. We'll never raise an Ebenezer. We'll never be able to say, hitherto hath the Lord helped us if we do not spend time with the Lord in prayer. But there's something even more beautiful here. Something really special in this passage. Do you notice, or did you notice, the mention of the sucking lamb? The sucking lamb. And did you notice where uh, they chased them, uh, where they defeated them? They smote them until they came under Beth Car. Beth Car has an interesting uh, meaning. It means the house of the lamb. So this triumph is connected with the sacrifice of a lamb. So you have the lamb sacrificed and they smote them until they came under the house of the lamb. Isn't that so interesting? That this great triumph was associated with the death of the lamb. And surely, I hardly need to to expound that to you. It is so glorious and so obvious. Our whole triumph over the enemy, our whole victory over sin, our whole hope for eternity is based on the death of the Lamb. You take the cross of Christ out of this world and you are doomed. You are doomed. There is no hope. There is no hope for this world without the cross of Christ, without the death of the Lamb of God. What did John the Baptist say as Christ walked along the shore of the Jordan? As he was walking along the banks of Jordan, John the Baptist spotted him and he pointed to him, I believe. And he said, Behold, behold, look, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. The Lamb slain. And our glory is in the cross. Paul said, we preach Christ crucified. He didn't preach up the church. He didn't preach man's ability. He didn't preach the, the improvement of the human race as man becomes more enlightened. No, he, he, he preached that old-fashioned message. And he said, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross, save in the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified to me and I to the world. The hymn writer said, in the cross of Christ I glory, towering all the wrecks of time, all the light of sacred story gathers round its head sublime. It towers over the wrecks of time. Everything else is a wreck and everything else will be a wreck. But the cross of Christ stands out. It's the only hope. It's the only hope for the soul that Jesus Christ has died. 
that Jesus Christ has shed his most precious blood. I cannot be rescued from my sins without the cross. I believe it's utterly wrong to suggest that God could have pardoned sin other than through the death of Jesus Christ. I believe it's utterly wrong to suggest it. Remember, Christ in Gethsemane cried, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And he was in an agony. His sweat fell to the ground as great drops of blood. If it's possible. The hymn writer or songwriter said there was no other way a God of love could find to reconcile the world and save a lost mankind. There was no other way but Calvary. You see, the sucking lamb is central to this story that we have. The sucking lamb, because that sucking lamb casts a great shadow forward. It looks to the cross. It looks to the death of the Son of God. And the Lord stepped in. The Lord stepped in as the sucking lamb was being offered. And the Israelites rose up and they smote them until they came under Bethkar, under that place that means the house of the Lamb. What a triumph. But then we can say, what a saviour. What a glorious and wonderful saviour. And, and that stirred up the people to fight because uh, when you grasp the significance of the cross and what Christ has done for you, that motivates you. Puts a fresh spring in your step, fresh energy into your bones no matter how old they are. And you say, I'll go forward. I'll fight against the enemy. I'll fight against sin. I'll fight against the devil. I'll not give up in this conflict until the Lord calls me home into his presence to see his face and to glory with him in his wonderful triumph. You, you know, God could have defeated the Philistines without the Israelites. He thundered on them and he discomfited them, we discover. And... They, they were uh, completely smitten. But the Lord uses his people. He, he, uh, he gets all the glory. We can't do a thing without him. We couldn't lift a little finger without him. We couldn't breathe one breath without him. But he uses us. He energizes us. We need to turn from every false way, from every sin, we need to long after him. We need to plead with him. And we will see him stepping in and giving us our greatest triumphs ever. And we'll, we'll put up that stone and we'll say, Ebenezer, this is just a marker that we're putting down to honor God and to say, up to now, the Lord has helped us. Up to this point, the Lord has delivered us. But then that word hitherto, it doesn't mean, and this is going by my last thought, it doesn't mean that that's it and now uh, the future's uncertain. Uh, there's an indication uh, in the expression that the Lord would continue to bless Israel. 
Now, I know that hitherto can sometimes mean thus far and no further. You find in Job chapter 38 that the Lord is speaking to Job and he he speaks about his command to the seas, the mighty oceans. Hitherto, hitherto, he says, uh, shall your proud waters come. That's your shore, that's your bank, that's your limit. Hitherto can mean that, that's the limit, that's as far as we're going. We're going no further. But in this case, it means something different. It's really saying, I've helped you up to now, right to this point. Now take heart from that. Because what I've done in the past, I can do in the future. I haven't finished with you. I've given you all the victories that you've achieved. I've defeated the Philistines. And he's really saying, I'll continue to help you. I will continue. You look at the verses afterwards and you see that's exactly what happened. Exactly what happened. Uh, You see there, uh, if you go on to verse 13, so the Philistines were subdued. They came no more into the coast of Israel and the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. And uh, the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron even unto Gath, and the coasts thereof did Israel deliver out of the hand of the Philistines. And then there's a little expression there at the end of that verse 14, and there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. That seems an odd thing. It just tells us something. It tells us the Amorites didn't dare attack Israel from that point on. They, they, they saw what God had done for Israel. The Philistines were defeated New ground was taken. Ebenezer wasn't the end of the process. It was the prelude to even greater success. So hitherto hath the Lord helped us doesn't mean that's a cutoff point. It means we can go forward from there to even greater triumphs. You may have noticed something in the hymns that we sang. And what you may have noticed is the word Ebenezer. And in the second of those hymns, number 442, let me just read to you a verse and tell you something about it. In verse 3 it says, His love in time past forbids me to think, he leave me at last in trouble to sink. Each sweet Ebenezer I have in review, in other words, each sweet Ebenezer that I look back on, each deliverance, each beautiful experience that I've had with the Lord, as I look back on it, confirms his good pleasure to help me quite through. Those words are found on a tombstone in London. It is the tombstone of Spurgeon and his wife. Charles Spurgeon and his wife, they're buried in a a wonderful tomb in the graveyard. And it's actually on Mrs. Spurgeon's side of the tomb that those words are found. Each sweet Ebenezer I have in review confirms his good pleasure to help me quite through. How wonderful that is. Ebenezer, the stone of help, points backward to what the Lord has done. 
but it points us forward with optimism and says, the Lord who was with me in the past and is with me right up to this moment will be with me in the future. And has he not said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. We can be cut off, but the Lord will not forget us if we're his. I mentioned Samson. The hair of his head began to grow again. There was renewed consecration, and he had his greatest triumph in his death, a greater triumph in death than he ever experienced in life. And again, that hymn writer said, Since all that I meet shall work for my good, the bitter is sweet, the medicine foot. Though painful at present, twill cease before long. Then, oh, how pleasant the conqueror's song. How good, how good to know that the God who saved us, if you're saved, is with you now, will not leave you, and will one day be waiting for you, and will say, well done, well done. Thou good and faithful servant, enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. But oh, what if God should testify against you? If the help you've heard of given to other people should come to witness against you, you knew there was help in God. You knew all you had to do was with young Charles Spurgeon look. Give yourself wholly to Christ. Seek him. But you didn't do it. That witness will be against you and will continue to be against you until you're commanded to depart and Christ will say, leave. Depart. I never knew you. You were never mine. My people, they can raise their Ebenezers. They're going home to glory soon. But you, leave me. Depart. Depart into the company that you've kept in earth. Depart to hell. Prepared for the devil, it says. Prepared for the devil and his angels. That's the company in your heart that you keep. Depart to be with your company. Do not linger. Do not delay. Come, come now to Jesus Christ. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, we pray that thou wilt apply thy truth to all of our hearts. We thank you, Lord, for the Ebenezers that are raised by thy people. We were utter failures. In ourselves we could do nothing. But when we looked to Christ, we experienced forgiveness. And now we're on a course that will lead us to glory. We pray for any who are not saved, that they will taste and see that the Lord is good and put their trust in him. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.